Well, uh, now I have you all to myself. Uh, Steve, so you've been talking about the devil for a really long time. Uh, what does that do to a man? To me or to anybody else? To you. To to, you. Well, How are you I, doing? How are you doing with this? So um, it's not my favorite series to preach. I'll be honest, I'd rather preach Christ. Um, but there is, it, it's sort of like preaching about the losing team. Um, it makes the winning team look even better, and we, we appreciate that. Um, no, it's been, it's been great for me. I mean, anytime you study the Word of God, it's, it's encouraging. Um, it's very sobering. It's, it's um, for me, a time to be reminded that um, we have an enemy that is very real. It's not, a, it's not a, just a Sunday school story. It's not a myth um, especially in the United States where we have everything we need and more, we tend to not see spiritual realities. And, and I think that's um, by Satan's design that he doesn't want us to, to see that he's working. You know, so we have to go looking for what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. So, so on those lines, can you just talk, talk us through um, what is the role of a, of a topical sermon or a series, you could say? like this in, in the life of the local church and, and what really led you to um, study this topic at this time? That's uh, first part of the question. What's the role of a topical series? Um, first of all, a, a topical series is um, it's a lot more difficult to prepare. It just takes a little more time. You know, when you have one passage and you know this, you know, you have two verses in Ephesians. I mean, that's just like comfort food. You know, it's just like I'm, I'm right there. I can just analyze the verbs and the nouns and so forth. A, a topical series is basically systematic theology. It is taking a topic and rather than having to wait, for example, uh, if, if I had to preach all the way through Ephesians and all the way through 2 Corinthians, you would get some great passages on Satan, but you wouldn't put together a theology of Satan uh, by listening for months and months and months. And so a topical series takes what the Bible says about a given topic and condenses it into a form that's understandable. Um, and it's, it's dangerous waters uh, because uh, as a student of God's word, and you know this, you have to um, still pay attention to authorial intent. You have to pay attention to, uh, you know, this morning, I think we looked at somewhere in the vicinity of 40 different passages of scripture. And so... Am I being faithful to, uh, for example, in Proverbs, uh, the Proverbs about what kings are supposed to do? Well, the context of Proverbs, Proverbs are written to a future king. And so that makes perfect sense. So the role of a topical series is basically to accelerate your growth. Let me put it this way. If you were going to learn to fly a 747, normal expository preaching um, going through verse by verse, word by word, is sitting in a classroom for years and years to learn to fly a 747. A topical series is you're about to get into the cockpit. Here's what you need to know before you take off. And so that's, that's kind of the difference. And then what was the second part of your question? Well, why preach that now? Yeah, yeah. What, wh- okay. What, why, not, why not preach on anxiety? I mean, clearly, uh, Darren and I thought anxiety was what you should have been preaching on right now. <laughs> so why, why did you choose uh, to study the devil right now? It was very simple for me. It was all about coronavirus. Because what I started seeing and talking to pastors and even talking to members in our own church was a, a, an overconfidence in that what CNN, Fox News, the Drudge Report, and all of those things say about coronavirus is the whole truth. That there's no spiritual aspect behind it. That it's simply merely a disease. Merely a pandemic is just one of those things. But Ephesians 6 tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. That there are, there are, are spiritual realities. And how do you know this? I mean... Every time you get a cold, you don't say there's some satanic spiritual reality behind this. But we do get the sense when the church of Jesus Christ started to be divided and you started to see those that were more concerned about staying physically healthy um, coming against those who were more concerned about the church staying spiritually healthy. Um, The United Methodist Church, they've made it their goal in life to be the best um, obeyers of all coronavirus 
uh, guidelines ever. In fact, uh, one article by the United Methodist Church that I read online said, we should set an example as the church by being the last institution to open up. As far as the United Methodist Church, I agree with them. I think they should be the last. So they, they should stay shut down as long as possible because they've neglected the gospel. But, um, so that's what brought me to it, is that, the, that men who would agree on everything suddenly were divided. And the basic difference was some began to see that there's a spiritual issue at play and some refused to see that. And so I wanted our church, I wanted in the spirit of 2 Corinthians uh, 11, where Paul told them that I am afraid that you are being led astray. And I didn't want that to happen here. Yeah, yeah, we want to be safe. Nobody wants to die of coronavirus. But one, Psalm 139, 16, we said that this morning, already says the day you're going to die. And so there are spiritual realities that we have to be aware of. And, and Satan's trick is to, um, to make certain we don't know he's working and to uh, numb the senses to those spiritual realities. So that, that's why I wanted to do it. I don't want you to be caught. Yeah, and I, I've really, I've been encouraged by it uh, tremendously, and it's helped me think, I'm sure everybody would say that, it's helped me think a lot more clearly and biblically about these issues. Um, in connection to this morning's message, now you talked about um, the government's mandate um, from God, what the government needs to be. Um, but connecting that to your series a little bit, um, what are, from your viewpoint, what are the, the top ways or the schemes that the, the devil um, uses in relation to a human government? Do you understand that question? Sure. Yeah. Well, you can just look at history to see what he does. Uh, history tells us that governments tend toward totalitarianism that they tend toward total control and dominance um, of, free, of people, not just to take away their freedoms, but uh, primarily to take away the worship of God. Um, <clears throat> find me an example in history of a totalitarian government that is in full support of the church of Jesus Christ. That's never happened. So that, that's his main, he wants, Satan wants to stop worship. Um, he wanted Christ to worship him. He wants the world to worship him. So in, in relation to government, um, Getting, getting Christians off track um, and thinking, for example, you know, uh, post-millennialism, the idea that the church will bring the kingdom of God uh, to, to bear into this world, it's not very popular today, but honestly, most American Christians are closet post-millennialists because on Wednesday morning, they're either going to be elated or suicidal. Because they think that Donald Trump will bring in the kingdom, apparently, if he's elected, and that um, the kingdom will just take longer if the other candidate is elected. But the fact is um, that uh, we can't be fooled by that. We have, we have a mandate to um, spread the gospel. We have a mandate to believe that Christ will return and to be influencers. Um, we're never called as the church to be quiet in terms of uh, influencing our government. We're, we're to be involved um, as much as possible. I would love it. I, I pray for Christian attorneys. I pray for Christian congressmen. Um, we want them there. Um, we, we want men who at least, may, even if they're not Christians, at least have, as we talked about this morning, a fear of God, a regard for Christians. Um, let me... Let me back into this also um, a lot of comparisons have been made between the coronavirus uh, uh, pandemic and the Spanish flu a hundred years ago and some of those comparisons are valid and they're helpful to us um, but first of all statistically way different Spanish flu um, 25 percent of everyone in the United States got the Spanish flu one out of 150 people were dying that's, that's people dying in the streets. Um, the coronavirus hasn't been anywhere near that. But the, the, the um, parallel has been made that, well, churches shut down then, too. It was way different. First of all, they shut down for a matter of weeks, not months. Um, and also, there was much more a sense of the government coming with hat in hand, saying to churches, we need you to cooperate. We need you to help us. And churches in the spirit of cooperation and love in their community saying, yes, we will do that. Um, but what you don't hear as much is that after, on average, five, six, or seven weeks, all the churches said, we're done with that. We're opening. 
And now part of that was because pretty much everyone who was going to die had died already. Um, it was a massive pandemic. Um, but there, was, there wasn't a sense in which the church was oppressed by the government. There was a sense in which the government, uh, especially local and state governments, came to the church and said, we need your help. We need you to help us. And that's, that's a way different um, dynamic than what we've seen now. Great. Uh, here's a few questions. Uh, I have one of those Elon Musk uh, microchips in my head, so I'm actually getting questions as we speak. <laughs> or maybe that's something else. Um, but I got a few questions from um, some people here. Uh, what, if any, uh, do, you, do you believe to be the connection between Satan and the obsession with ghosts, aliens, and monsters like Bigfoot or the Wendango? Um, do you do you see any connection there between? Did you, I mean, we were just coming off of Halloween here, so do, do you think Satan uses these things to get us off track, to distract us, or, or what do you what do you see the connection as? There's, I haven't done this here yet, but um, in Texas, I used to preach a sermon on Halloween every year, um, and, and I don't have time to go into all that now. There's a couple of aspects to that. Um, for, first of all, don't you find it interesting that in our culture? On Saturday night, almost everybody celebrated death, and on Sunday morning, Christians celebrate the life of Christ. Uh, how weird is that? Um, so, you know, we, we don't preach thou shalt not celebrate Halloween, but I'll ask, why would you? I mean, why, why would you celebrate death? But the, um, the, the interesting thing is that it has desensitized our culture to death. It's desensitized our culture to, um, you know, you see skeletons in people's yards, and nobody thinks about the fact that will be me. That will be me. That is my future. Um, that my flesh will die. And what's going to happen then? Um, but regarding ghosts, people say, well, do you believe in ghosts? Uh, I believe that uh, lots of people have seen them. Um, I think a great example uh, in First uh, uh, Samuel 28, when Saul, in desperation, goes to the witch of Endor, and he says, I want to see the spirit of, of uh, Samuel, the prophet who had died. And the witch of Endor said, all right, you know, $1.95 or whatever she charged for that service. And she fully expected to see a ghost. But she was shocked and surprised that it was actually Samuel. It was actually the spirit of Samuel. That was the Lord God sovereignly allowing that situation um, to happen. But she had seen spirits in the past. She was just surprised that it was actually the person. That was unusual. So uh, there's only one other option then. There, there would be um, demonic manifestations. And people say, well, that, you know, they can't possibly do that. Of course they can. Demons can observe the life of someone, and when they die, then they simply mimic that person. And people say, oh, look, it's, it's my Aunt Matilda. She loved macaroni and cheese. Well, because some demons saw, well, she eats macaroni and cheese every Thursday night. We'll go with that one. Um, what about UFOs? Uh, lots of people have seen UFOs. Uh, I mean, that's probably like lower level demon stuff. Hey, look at this flashlight. I just shine it in the sky and everybody goes nuts. <laughs> it just, so they fool people. They want us to believe in extraterrestrial life. They want us to um, uh, believe in ancestor worship. Everybody, by the way, defaults to ancestor worship. If you don't know Christ, uh, you go to a funeral and you say, well, there lies aunt so-and-so and I believe she's doing what? watching over me. That's ancestor worship. And so, uh, yeah, Satan would love for us to, to believe in those things and has provided plenty of manifestations. Uh, you know, I mean, I think it'll be great to find out that Area 51 was actually just an In-N-Out burger that was shut down or, or something. But um, the Lord will bring all those things to light. Don't worry. Um, they're not going to discover Martians. They're not going to discover life on other planets because God's, um, God's plan has been on this planet. It, it just has, so... If there is uh, in and out in Area 51, it's the best in and out, by the way. That's right. Because nobody else is there, just me. <laughs> uh, um, just practically with the believer, uh, we see in James 4, 7, uh, talking about resisting the devil, and he will flee from you. Uh, what does it mean practically for a believer? Not an unbeliever now, but for a, for a believer. What, what does it mean for a believer to practically resist the devil is—is is there something going on there that they're doing, that they're thinking, that they're saying, uh, or, or what would you what would you understand James four seven to be talking about? Well, in um, in charismatic circles, 
Um, resisting the devil is something that happens in the worship service. Um, it's something that you do. Um, it's something that um, you know happens with with loud voices and uh, all kinds of incantations. Ba- basically, uh, what you might call Christian witchcraft, um, where you're attempting to, by the power of man, uh, manipulate the spirit of God into doing what you want. Um, when I was in college, uh, there was a, the, the room above my dorm room was an empty room and it was used by a charismatic group to do what they, uh, they called spiritual warfare. And they were up there screaming and hollering and banging around and I just went up and, and got to talk to them. Sylvia remembers this. She was there with me and, and there was a young man there who was, he, he kind of hoped to be the next T.D. Jakes, I guess, but he wasn't good enough so he didn't make it. But they said, we're doing spiritual warfare and we're, we're fighting off demons and, and this and that. And, and these young people came out and they just looked, they, they looked terrified and they had no idea what they were messing with. I have no doubt they were messing with demons. But they had no; they were utterly unarmed. So, what does it mean to resist the devil? Well, it's exactly the the passage that Darren read tonight um, from Ephesians six that we put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So, how do you resist him? Well, you resist him with sound doctrine. And you resist him with sound practice. Um, resist him the way Paul would say: know what is true and live what is true. That's how you resist the devil. Um, and and it's, it's the idea of uh, knowing your enemy. That's what this series I'm preaching is about. Um, and being so in sync with Christ, so in sync with his word. Um, there's, not a, there's not a magic wand. There's not a, I'm going to pray this one incredible prayer. Uh, you resist the devil, according to verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And so it is a, it is a lifetime endeavor um, but the, I, I think one of the big things and the re- reason I'm preaching this series is for us personally, we all have blind spots and that's where you need to be looking. That's where you need to be looking because that's where Satan will, will get you. And so the easiest way to resist the devil is to ask the question, what would Satan have me do right now? And then don't do that. Don't do that thing. That's what resisting the devil is. So... What would you say to someone who says uh, we need to, you know, bind Satan in this moment? You know, we need to pray against him and his works and, and bind him and anything like that. Uh, you know, uh, language is dangerous because it can be used by different people in different ways. Um, we quote unquote bind Satan by doing what the Bible says. Um, we bind Satan by putting on the whole armor of God. But if you say, well, we need to pray in this moment to bind Satan. I would sort of agree because uh, Ephesians 6 says pray at all times. So that should be a, a continual thing. But the language of binding Satan, that's used in charismatic circles um, to, to say that, that we're going to, by our prayers, by saying the right words, we're going to make Satan leave or we're going to make demons leave. And it's really quite arrogant because um, we are mortal uh, fighting against invisible, immortal beings who have been around for thousands and thousands of years and who have fooled people way smarter than all of us. And we say, well, we're going to say the right prayer. We're going to make sure that the, the music uh, goes, goes up higher. And, and um, you know, it's a well-known fact in charismatic churches that if you change keys to a higher key in a song, that the Satan, Satan leaves. Um, but those are the same people who also say, we want to invite the Holy Spirit to come here. I don't even like to say that out loud. Um, God is omnipresent. He's already everywhere. It's like saying, Steve, I'd like to invite you to your own house. Uh, No, I already live there. Thank you. But that language of binding is very dangerous because um, actually what that does is that goes right along with the theology of God and Satan essentially being in a battle in which there's a question as to the outcome. And so we're continually binding Satan. We're continually having to, um, then they start making up things that what's big, it's been big for 30 years now, generational curses. Well, because my dad was this and that, and because my grandfather did this, I'm still under this generational curse and that needs to be bound. Satan's using that in my life. Well, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians five seventeen that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The only generational curse you have is if your dad had big feet and you got them too. Okay, well, 
That's it. <laughs> Sorry. You know, no, never mind. Um, my son has big feet. Uh, anyway, um, here's this, this topic also um, brings up a lot of talk about angels um, and demons. Um, and there's been, a, there's been a lot of interest, at least in the questions I've received, about um, demons. Particularly, what do you think um, about angels? Can angels still fall away today? Is, is Satan still in a work of deceiving angels, and how do we know if he's not? That, yeah, that's an interesting question. So in other words, are the ranks of heaven uh, diminishing still? Because there's no more angels being made that we know of. So if one more angel gets deceived... Um, then that means the ranks of heaven have gone down by one. Um, the Bible doesn't address that super uh, directly, but I think there's some indirect evidence that no, that's not happening. Um, first of all, uh, we know from Revelation 12 that Satan took one-third of the angels with him. That seems to be a pretty set number. We also know from 1 Peter 3 that there are a set number of angels locked away in the abyss. Um, those are specifically the angels we talked about them this morning who are called the sons of God or in BTI rather this afternoon the sons of God in the in um, Genesis 6 that deceived uh, the daughters of men and and really caused mankind to become so wicked that the flood had to come um, so there's a set number of them that are locked away so it doesn't seem that they're they're any more going down um, I think Satan had one shot and here's I think I think the best evidence is that angels are created to be followers. They're created to be servants. Satan was fairly unique um, because he was created to be a leader. Um, Ezekiel 14 says that he was the guardian cherub in Eden. He was a leader of angels. He was most likely the head angel. And so at this point, uh, theoretically, for more angels to fall, probably the next guy in line, the angel Michael, would have to fall as well. And if you read the history of the angel Michael in Scripture, he is loyal, loyal, loyal to his God. So I think for that reason, those reasons, no, that's, there's no more angels going to fall. It, and, and regardless, I would, I would want to think that, you know, God being in control. I mean, the, the idea behind that question maybe suggests there's an out-of-control nature there. Like, oh boy, more, another angel on the devil's team. But God is still in control. And, yep. and that's encouraging to me. Um, what about um, the Christian and demon possession? Have you, ever, have you ever heard someone talk about that? What, what would you respond to that question? Can I be possessed by a demon? I've done enough marriage counseling that's made me answer that, ask that question more than once. <laughs> Like, are you a Christian? Because I just heard what you just said to your husband, and that's like demonic, what you would say. Um, the short answer is no. And, and there's probably two big lines of evidence to help us understand that. Um, first of all, Romans 8, verse 9 says that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to God. So to be a Christian, you must have the Spirit of Christ in you. You pair that up with Mark chapter 3, where um, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus said, and this is my paraphrase, you guys are idiots. Uh, basically, he said, how would Satan cast out Satan? A house divided against itself cannot stand. And then he used an illustration that before you can plunder a strong man's house, you have to be able to tie up that strong man. In other words, before a demon could possess or oppress, however you want to say it, um, a Christian, that demon would have to be able to tie up, as it were, the Holy Spirit who indwells us. So, no, that can't happen. Now, um, we certainly see in Ephesians 4 that it's possible for a Christian to give Satan an opportunity, to give the devil an opportunity. That's a different topic. Um, but when you see demon possession or oppression in the Bible, it's total other control. And, and complete control of a person's life. That cannot happen. You are abiding in Christ. You have the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Um, you have the seal of the Holy Spirit. You have Christ who has promised he will never let you out of his hand. So here's an interesting theory. If a Christian could be possessed, and as he's possessed, steps in front of a bus by accident, um, does he go to heaven with the demon? Because Christians go to heaven. 
So what, what happens then? So it becomes ridiculous when you, when you start to think about it. No, um, if, if you're a believer and you're wondering if you're being oppressed or even possessed by a demon, first of all, question your salvation. I'd rather you be a Christian questioning your salvation every day than the other way around. Um, but the other one is, if you think you're being oppressed at that level, I can guarantee you 100% of the time there are major areas of disobedience in your life that have stolen your joy, stolen your confidence in the Lord because you're trying to live in, with one foot in both in each world. One foot in heaven, one foot in the world. So uh, if you think you're being possessed, rather than that, how about wonder whether you're being obedient? So I think that's a better answer for you. Is there anything else that you, you would say to that? The, the, the Ephesians for idea of giving Satan a foothold there. Um, what, what does that look like? How, how, do, how do we do that and how do we avoid doing that? You, you mentioned obedience. Is there any, anything else practically? Well, the, the context of that verse in Ephesians 4 where it says, do not give the devil an opportunity. Um, the context of that is, is being angry for long periods of time. Um, it, the context is uh, not being bitter. Uh, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander along with all malice be put away from you. Um, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So the opportunity, the foothold, um, would work something like uh, a, a seed that, that is planted and it's, it's a seed with, with wickedness and evil and you're f- allowing that to fester. And so uh, the idea of the foothold, the opportunity of Satan, it's, it's connected to your own sin. That if Satan can put you in a situation where your greatest weaknesses are exposed and you go with it. Uh, I'll give you an example of that foothold. One of, the, one of the big topics in that passage in Ephesians 4 has to do with the tongue. And how you use the tongue and, not, and using the tongue in a way that is uplifting and, up, and building up to people. Um, I've been a pastor long enough to see the devastating effect of gossip. Because what happens is gossip is basically a one-sided piece of information given to somebody about somebody who's not there to set the record straight. Proverbs 18.17 says that a matter seems right until another comes and examines him. And I've seen this happen to where a, a person can become furious and angry and their whole view of another person completely utterly changes because they believed that one comment and never checked it out. And now there can literally be hatred between believers because that seed, they gave the devil an opportunity. So, so really, it's again going back to that question, hmm, I just listened to something about someone who's not here. What would Satan have me do? Satan would have me mull it over, would have me believe it, would have me believe that this person telling me things absolutely has the correct view and has everything exactly right. That's what Satan would have me do. I, that, that's one of the ways that, that God takes people out of churches. If he can get church members really mad at their pastor over something that's stupid or not true, um, then he can, he can devastate the life of a whole family. Or worse, if they become gossips, he can devastate the life of a group of families. Uh, I've seen that happen enough. Um, and so that seed, that opportunity is Satan just presents a little opportunity to you. Here's a sin I know you're really good at. What will you do with it? What will you do with it? Um, another question that we received. Uh, are Satan and the demons spatially limited? And this is the best part. Ready? If so, what's your best guess for where Satan is right now? Oh, that's a good one. My best guess, the opportunity to make a joke right now is, is overwhelming. Fortunately, I don't know where the headquarters for the Democratic National Committee is, so I, I, I can't answer that question. Um, let's go back to the easier theological question. Where is Satan right now? Um, I, I, he's, he's not stationary. Um, he told God in Job 1 that he had come back from roaming to and fro on the earth. So he goes different places, which does tell us something, that he is spatially limited um, as our demons. Uh, I, I think it's a mistake to elevate Satan 
uh, to, the, to the point of God, which is what happens in, in Assembly of God, charismatic Pentecostal circles. They would never say that. They would say, well, God's going to win, but they would say it's just going to be really close. No, it's not going to be close. We don't want to elevate Satan. He is not any of the omnis. He's not omniscient, all-knowing. He's not omnipresent, everywhere present. Um, he's certainly not uh, omnipotent, all-powerful. But I will tell you this. He knows more than you. He can be in more places than you, and he's more powerful than you. So there is a sense in which we're going to be careful. We don't, we, we don't get careless and say, you know, the odds of Satan being around my house right now are pretty low. Uh, yeah, but the odds of, of any of his millions, perhaps billions of demons being near you are, is very high. So, um, no, he's not omniscient, but he doesn't need to be. He has minions um, called principalities and authorities, uh, this hierarchy that, that he has used to uh, emulate, to imitate in mocking fashion God's hierarchy among the, nation, uh, the, among the angels. But I don't know where he is. You don't, come on, come on, just guess. <laughs> just guess. Okay, okay, all right. I'll let you off the hook. Um, Am I going to get in trouble for the Democratic National no, Committee no. joke? I'm sure James can edit that out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the Bema seat, uh, the, the, the judgment seat of Christ for believers. Um, will, maybe you can just give us some background a little bit on when that will be and what that will be, but uh, will Satan be there accusing us? Interesting. Um, actually, I never thought about that before. Will Satan be there? Because I always assume no. So let's see. Uh, <laughs> let's see what happens. Um, the bema seat uh, in English, B-E-M-A. Uh, it's based on the Greek word for judgment, um, and that comes from uh, Romans fourteen. Uh, verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment, the bema seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to me. And here's what's going to happen. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That is the judgment seat, the bema seat. And don't, don't panic yet. We have to finish this theology. Um, it's also referenced in um, 2 Corinthians 5. Um, I think it's verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 10. So we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is not judgment unto salvation. That's already happened. The judgment for your sin happened at the cross. So that's done. This is judgment unto reward. And so uh, whether good or evil, uh, the, the Greek word for evil, if I remember right, it, it means like worthless or light, um, heavy and important versus worthless and light. And so those things, according to 1 Corinthians 3, that are worthless, that are light, will be burned up. Um, now, in regards to will Satan be there accusing us, I take such great comfort from... Uh, well, first of all, we have to know when's the Bema seat going to happen. Does it happen the moment you die? I mean, after all, uh, Hebrews 9.27 says, for it is appointed for man to die once and after that to face judgment. But, you know, when the Lord says after that, he might mean a thousand years. Um, he's not bound by that time like, like we are. I tend toward the view that two major things are going to happen in heaven while the great tribulation is happening on earth. The first major thing that's going to happen is the Bema seat judgment that all believers from the church age at that point will be assigned their rewards. Um, and those rewards are very much connected to the coming millennial kingdom. And you think about the, the parable of the talents that Jesus told. Um, he said that some will receive uh, one city, some five cities, some ten cities. Um, that's in the kingdom. And so that has to be assigned beforehand. The second major thing that would happen during the uh, Great Tribulation, while that's happening on earth, it happens in heaven, is the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is really the consummation of the church meeting with Christ. Um, so that's happening then. The Bema seat happens most likely during the Great Tribulation. But something else happens at the three and a half year mark of the Great Tribulation. According to Revelation 12, you remember that, that Satan has access to God. Job 1 tells us this. He has access to God. He accuses the brothers. But Revelation 12 says that at that three and a half year mark, 
Satan and his demons will be thrown out of heaven. He's called the, the one who accuses the brothers day and night. And it says that he will not accuse them anymore. So I think, you know, while, while we do live in a sense of, um, there should be a sense of sobriety that, that we're told that all of us will give an account before God. But that account is for reward. It is not for salvation. Um, and I, I, I can't see that Satan's going to be part of that conversation at all because he will have been cast away at that point. He accuses us now. That's why we need an advocate before the Father. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who, who hammers down those accusations continually. So we're thankful for that. Did I answer your question, sort of? Hopefully, whoever you are out there. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but to kind of tag on there, uh, what is Christ's role in that judgment, you talked about him being an advocate right now. Right. Um, is he my judge then and not my advocate? Or, or does, how does he function in your mind um, at that moment? It, we wanna, I want to be careful about not splitting hairs with the Trinity. Um, he is always my advocate. I take the view that he will always be advocating for me. Now, the, the, the major reason to advocate now is because we do have an accuser. But um, the Lord Jesus Christ said in John's gospel that no one will snatch the believer out of his hand. There's not an asterisk there that in the footnote says, but once you get to heaven, Jesus will let go because you're automatically saved forever. I, I take the view that you will be saved forever because he will never open his hand and let go of you ever. Um, so toward that end, um, can, can he be your judge and your rewarder all at the same time? Absolutely. So I, I don't see a need to split those, uh, split those roles. Um, okay. We're, we're coming near the end here. Oh, wait. Let me, let me go back. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead okay, go ahead. sorry. I'm not done uh, yet, but go ahead. All right. I, I just remembered. Uh, a couple of parables Jesus tells. Uh, the parable of a master or a king who goes away and then comes back and rewards the faithful. Well, the master, the king, is obviously Jesus, so he is the giver of rewards. So I, I would say he's the giver of rewards. Okay. okay. It's okay. Go ahead. Uh, just um, kind of one of the final questions here is, so Pastor Steve, you've been thinking a lot about the devil for the last couple months. <laughs> We're a little concerned. Maybe that's why you needed a vacation. We don't know. <laughs> um, what would you say to this flock here? How much should we be thinking about and worrying about or praying against the devil? We kind of talked about that a little bit earlier, but what, what would you say to, uh, to, us, to us regular people? How much should we be thinking about these things? Um, I wouldn't have decided to take 10 messages to preach on Satan if I didn't think we should be thinking about him a lot. And I don't mean in the sense of, of, of charismatic obsession. And I talked about this, I think, in the first message I did. This um, very, very shallow view of Satan that says, you know, Satan wanted me to eat that second piece of cake, but I resisted by God's power. And, well... That's a view of Satan that says that he's just an irritant. Um, Satan wants people to go to hell. That, that's what he wants. And he wants Christians. Um, you're his real enemy. Uh, the, the unbeliever is pretty much doing what he wants already. But you're his real enemy. He wants you to live an unproductive life. He wants you to appear at the Bema seat and have all of your works burned up because your life was worthless. 1 Corinthians 3 warns about this, that you may appear before God and you will receive eternal life, but you will come home as one naked who comes through a fire. So that's what Satan wants for you. So can I say this? You should be concerned. You should be concerned. You have one life to live, which will determine your eternal reward before God. And so every choice you make is either good or evil. Those are your two options. And so, yes, you should be concerned. Now, it's not the sense of I, I'm going to be worried and I'm going to feel powerless. We're anything but powerless. Um, Ephesians 6 gives us the full armor of God. I'm going to preach on that in a couple of weeks um, and, and go through that. And I hope that will be encouraging to you. But it does say in verse 18 to pray at all times in the spirit. And the context is because of the schemes of the devil. Um, in other words, you're never off duty. You're never, you never let your guard down. 
Um, you never think, well, I can sort of coast on this great quiet time I had six months ago. You're never coasting. You never are. Um, because that's precisely, uh, Satan's very, very, very patient. He can wait thousands of years. And he'll wait for that moment when you let your guard down and he's been planning it. Um, you know, you've heard lots of sermons on God loves you and has a wonderful pl- plan for your life. Somebody needs to preach a sermon, God hates you, or rather Satan hates you, and has a horrible plan for your life. And that's true. Satan hates you and has a a horrible plan for your life. If I don't get that right, I'm going to be labeled a heretic here online. (laughs) So I preached like for 15 minutes once on Moses and the ark. (laughs) And my wife is just shrinking down. What's what's the problem? This is a great sermon. Yeah, it would be if it was Noah. (laughs) But... Uh, so let, let me let me tag on to that though. Um, <clears throat> the United States of America, to use as an example, we're concerned about foreign enemies. We're concerned about terrorists. We're concerned about those that would want to destroy our nation. But we also have overwhelmingly the greatest military on planet Earth, and so there is a sense in which we rest at ease. Because we know we can outgun anybody. And that's the confidence we ought to have. Yes, Satan hates you and has a horrible plan for your life. But you are armed to the teeth. You are defended if you will take up the full armor of God. If you're defenseless, that's your fault. Because it's all laying right there for you to take up. Um, I I love this. uh, The thought I, I read this morning uh, about David and Goliath. Hadn't read that in a while and, and just tried to read it with new eyes. And one thing I noticed I had forgotten about was after he killed Goliath, David returned the head to the people of Israel to say, I've killed this man. But he took the armor for himself. He took a little, uh, little memento. And I think that was just a reminder to him of what God had done because he wasn't wearing any armor. Remember that he, he was, uh, from a worldly standpoint, defenseless. But he told Goliath, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord our God. And he was the one who was truly defended. So I, I think he took Goliath's armor to say, look what God took down. This armor I can barely lift. So. It's always interesting to me that those flannel graphs do not have Goliath's head bleeding. In David's hand. That's true. I don't know why they always overlook that part. That's a very significant part of the story, but oh well. Um, it is Reformation Sunday. Um, I, I have truly appreciated the Lord's words in this last year about, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, from your reading, um, maybe church history, uh, Reformation history. Uh, what is one of your favorite, favorite accounts that illustrate those words of Jesus that the gates of hell have not prevailed against the church that we can take with us uh, in this next week? Just a reminder of God's faithfulness. Sir. Sure, um, I think that's a fairly misunderstood idea. That the gates of hell, gates of Hades, uh, if we want to be uh, particular. I know, I remember being a child, I have all these pictures in my mind of these word pictures in the Bible, and, and I, I pictured these gates, like with feet on them, coming and like banging against a church door, that the gates of hell will not prevail. Well, what, in ancient times, the gates were where wisdom came, where the elders of the town were, where they, um, they gave judgments to the people. And so the gates of hell is the, 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 the wiles the schemes, the, um, the tricks of the evil one, the tricks of evil, of, of hell, of Satan, that all of the tricks of Satan, all of the tricks of the evil one and his demons will not prevail against the church. That ultimately the church will prevail, the, the church will be um, victorious. So I, I think um, one of my favorite figures in church history is John Wycliffe. I think he's a favorite for, for me. He preached in the 13th century, uh, in 1300s rather, and I've, I've gotten to stand in his pulpit. And I'll tell you what, in those days, they knew how to build pulpits. 
Um, it wasn't a wonderful box, which we have, and I love that. Thank you, Bob, for making that. But the pulpit was like a, a, a battleship. And you ascended the steps of this thing. And if that thing fell on you, you were dead. I mean, it was big. And there was an idea, for example, the pulpit, the platform that Charles Spurgeon used. I'll come back to Wycliffe in a moment. The platform that Charles Spurgeon used had 15 steps. And on every step, he said, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. He had to say that because he preached from basically a three by five card because he was a genius. Um, unlike some of us who have to take pages of notes. But John Wycliffe, he preached in a time where no Christians in England had a Bible in their language. And so he would preach on Sundays um, in English to his congregation, and then he would spend his week translating portions of the New Testament um, and giving them to men who would later, later be called the Lollards, who would go and hand out copies of portions of the New Testament to churches all over the English countryside. And you know why they had to do it at night? Because it was illegal. It was illegal. And so he said the word of God going out is more important than any law that the church or a government can make. And so I, I, love, I love Wycliffe. Um, I'll tell you what, I, the thing about him is he didn't have any models to, to look to. He didn't have a Christian bookstore to read lots of Christian biographies. He had his Bible and he had a determination that the word of God would be placed into the hands of everybody possible. And so he's a, a tremendous uh, inspiration to me. Oh, that's great. That's, that's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, would you like to uh, close our time in prayer? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me say one more thing then we'll pray. Sorry. <clears throat> um, what is the danger in the Bible church? What is our weak point? What is our blind spot? There's an example of a Bible church in the Bible. It's in, in uh, Revelation 2, and that is the church at Ephesus. I know your works. You stand for sound doctrine, but you've lost your first what? Love. Yeah. Um, the Bible church movement started uh, just about 100 years ago with people just dying, in, dying spiritually in uh, denominational churches, in mainline denominations. And now Bible conferences began to be the means by which people were fed the word of God. That in turn started seminaries, most notably Dallas Theological Seminary, to begin to train men to exposit the scriptures and begin feeding God's people once again and get away from the namby-pamby cotton candy that they've been given um, for so many decades. And because of that, people started getting saved. They started knowing the word of God. But like anything else, like the church at Ephesus, it began to be known that the Bible church is now what they call the head church. Uh, meaning that you go there to learn a lot of facts and, and a lot of doctrine, but um, you don't really learn to love God. And that's why we try to say all we can. Theology is only as useful as it teaches you to love and worship Christ. And that's, so our danger is spiritual pride. Our danger is to say, you know, that, uh, that, that you know, we have five million sermons on our website. You know, what have you got? Um, it's not a competition. Our danger is, is what you're learning, is what you're growing in, is what you're knowing, making you more and more like Christ, softening your heart, giving you a determination that the church of Jesus Christ will gather together, will love one another, and love our community. Um, is it making a difference? So that, that's our weak spot. Um, I, I, I wish that we had as much drive and desire to reach out to the homeless, to reach out to those uh, under horrible drug and alcohol addictions, but it tends to be other types of churches that do that. And so I'm praying that we'll do that, that we have that because we, we tend to be very introspective. Us four no more shut the door. Um, and, and we, we don't want to do that. So I, I think before we close in prayer, I just would, I would always caution us that as you're learning and growing and grasping the great truths of God, it should make you effective for Christ, both in the church and outside the walls. That, that has to be our goal, is, is love. So um, we want to watch out for that scheme. So yeah, let's close in prayer, and then we got another song to do? Okay. Thank you, Father, for...
this time to be together and I look out at these faces that I know you love, these people that before eternity passed, you chose them for salvation. And that any one of them, Lord, someday in the millennial kingdom of Christ will be effective and amazing rulers, kings and queens for the king of kings. But in the meantime, Lord, we have work to do. We have souls to preach to. We have truths to learn. We have lives to live that are, uh, are to be glorifying to you. And so I pray for that. I do pray that you would help us, Lord, to be spiritually alert. We know and look forward to the day when we will be completed in Christ. But in the meantime, we are to watch out for the schemes of the devil. We are to look in our blind spots. We are to know our own sins and carefully manage them through repentance and through the help of the body of Christ and through prayer and through the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, through the shield of faith, through the breastplate of righteousness, through the preparation of the gospel of peace which shods our feet. And so, Lord, we we pray um, that you would protect us We pray that you would be pleased to use this little body of believers, Lord, to have a tremendous impact on the world, to bring kingdom citizens into the kingdom. We pray that you would connect the gospel with the elect through us, and that as they hear, they would believe, they would come to faith. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who is unable to resist the devil and have him flee from him because he is defenseless as an unbeliever. I pray that the Spirit of God now would enlighten his eyes to repent and to come to faith in Christ. And I pray for the believer among us, Lord, who has given the devil an opportunity, who knows the sin that so easily besets, whether it is a gossipy tongue or a lustful heart or greed or anger. They know. And so I pray, Lord, that they would resist by being obedient and doing the opposite of what the devil would have them do and do what Christ would have them to do, thus proving their love for Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this time. I pray it has been helpful. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, David. Good job.